Welcome to Refine These Times, the podcast bringing you conversations at the intersection of politics, culture, and the environment. My name is Joey Ayub, and today we'll be talking with Aida Hosic. Her research is situated at the intersection of political economy, cultural studies, and international security. We spoke about a recent long blog post that she wrote for LSE. It's called Dayton, WPS, and the Entrenched Manliness of Ethnic Power Sharing Peace Agreements. We spoke about a number of things here. We spoke about the 1995 Dayton Accords and its context, and as well as the gendered impact of these accords. We got into a bit on the Women, Peace and Security, or WPS agenda, its background and why it matters. Then we did a number of like very interesting comparisons, in my opinion, like Bosnia and Belgium, uh, which many people, I think, don't really think about. But also Bosnia and Lebanon. It just so happened that I'm from Lebanon, uh, Aida is from Bosnia. And so we found the opportunity to make many interesting comparisons between uh, Sarajevo and Beirut, and also just more broadly speaking between Bosnia and Lebanon, uh, including looking at the ongoing impacts of the Ta'if agreement, the one that officially ended the war in Lebanon, as well as the Dayton Accords in Bosnia. We also kind of got into how Bosnia influenced the 2011 Arab Spring, and especially responses to the Arab Spring. So basically, how have responses to the Bosnian wars and the Bosnian genocides influenced responses to the 2011 Arab Spring, either in the West or in these countries proper? We kind of got into how there are, in many ways, multiple Syrias, just as are multiple Bosnians. She even got into what we should really mean when we talk about intervention, and looking at the cases of Bosnia, of Rwanda, of Libya, and of Syria. We got into the the peace accords as essentially, or the way they have been done thus far, as essentially, quote, appeasing men who have guns, end quote. We also got into a recurring theme on this podcast, i.e. the simplistic anti, quote-unquote anti-imperialism that many people on the left seem, seem to continue to engage in. We then got into uh, big powers politics, how the EU sees Bosnia, how the EU and what I would call Fortress Europe, uh, how they have been viewing uh, quote-unquote foreign peoples, uh, especially in the case of the migrants and refugees struggling through what is called the Balkan route. Finally, we sort of concluded in, in how gender analysis also helps us focus on, quote, who else is missing. So in a way of applying gender analysis beyond just gender. So that's today's episode. This episode was first published for monthly Patreon supporters. To become a monthly Patreon supporter, please head out to patreon.com slash fire these times. That is patreon.com slash fire these times or check the website for other methods. And if you cannot donate, you can still support this project by sharing with your friends and family and leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get a podcast. The music of this podcast is by Tara Beat. Thank you for listening and take care. My name is Aida Hozic. Um, I'm an associate professor of international relations and an associate chair of the Department of Political Science at the University of Florida in the United States. Um, I come originally from Sarajevo, Bosnia and Herzegovina. Um, I come from a very um, ethnically, religiously mixed family. um, And I have a kind of a similar mix of educational disciplinary background. I usually write at the intersection of political economy, cultural studies, and international security. And very recently, I wrote a long post for Women, Peace, and Security blog at the London School of Economics. The post discussed the entrenched entrenched manliness of ethnic power sharing peace agreements, and particularly the Dayton Peace Agreement, which ended the Bosnian War in 1995. Um, and that long post was, I think, the reason why you invited me and why, why, why I'm here today. 
Yes, indeed. So let, let's start with just some background in, into the piece. Uh, what do you argue in it? And if that's okay, just for, I try to have these episodes being kind of self-containing. So for those who don't know much, if you can just provide some historical background of what we're even talking about, so that it doesn't require anyone to be a specialist to, to follow our conversation. So, of, of, of course, and I hope this will be clear enough, but if it's not, just kind of interrupt me and ask me for further clarifications. So the post was a feminist reflection on the state and peace agreement, which was negotiated at the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio, in November of 1995. Uh, it was kind of a masterpiece of diplomatic masterpiece of Richard Holbrook, um, the U.S. diplomat who passed about a decade ago. This agreement ended the Bosnian War uh, and created a very complex institutional infrastructure, which allowed for power sharing among the three warring parties, which is how the West liked to call uh, the three ethnic groups which were vying for power in Bosnia at the time, uh, Bosnian Muslims, Bosnian Croats, and Bosnian Serbs. They also invited, the U.S. negotiators also invited the leadership of the neighboring countries of Serbia and Croatia as guarantors of peace. Um, there's a lot that's kind of controversial even about the setup of this um, you know, kind of who's contesting here for power and how and who's negotiating peace, because for a number of people, this was not necessarily a civil war between these three quote unquote equal warring parties, uh, but the case of Serbian and to a lesser extent, Croatian aggression on, on Bosnia. Nonetheless, the agreement was praised because it ended the war and because it put to, to end this kind of extreme and very often just quite monstrous violence uh, that lasted over four years. Um, and um, it also was the first agreement that brought any kind of fruition after many unsuccessful attempts to negotiate even a truce in Bosnia and Herzegovina. But it was also controversial because it sealed ethnic kind of territorial gains, which were reached through this monstrous violence, through ethnic cleansing and through um, genocide. And then the final point, which is not emphasized often enough, um, not that there are not no other feminist scholars who have already written about it, but it's just not emphasized often enough, is that the peace agreement was negotiated by men and men only. There were no women present there except for Holbrook's wife. Um, even though violence against women was one of the kind of key strategic features of this war, um, especially by the Serbs and against the Bosnian Muslim um, women. So this text that I wrote for Women, Peace and Security blog at the London School of Economics was actually then kind of a feminist critique of this agreement. And my key argument was that the agreement was manly, not just in the composition of its key participants, but also in its main features, which sealed ethnicity as the key factor in Bosnian politics, thus rendering all other possible and overlapping political identities either less salient or outright unrepresentable and invisible. The agreement also favored a very narrow militarized interpretation of security over issues of social and economic justice, gender equality, or even democracy as such. So my text builds onto an entire library of fantastic works already written about gender in Bosnia um, and about gender and post-conflict studies more broadly, um, as well as onto the numerous policy analysis of the women, peace, and security agenda in its implementation. But what may have made this long blog post powerful was kind of a long period of gestation. <laughs> I sat on this for a very long time. I wrote the first draft after attending a very well-organized conference about the 20th anniversary of the Dayton Agreement held in Dayton, Ohio in 2015. And at that conference, a number of these living participants of negotiations in Dayton came. Um, they were all men. 
and they started telling their kind of stories of how the agreement was negotiated. And it was the stories that they were telling of like who bought whiskey to whom, who, you know, invited who to dinner, um, how they jostled power um, in the corridors that actually made me fully aware of just how manly that process was. So I wrote the first draft of um, this post and then presented it at another conference about Dayton at Brown University, where there was a number of diplomats uh, kind of in attendance and they completely shunned me after I presented it. Um, they just wouldn't talk to me at all. Um, so. I waited then for another five years for another series of conferences about Dayton, another series of anniversaries. Um, and after realizing this year um, that that manly discourse was just not going away, you know, not, not in the agreement, but also in the reminiscing about the agreement, um, I kind of decided to revise the piece and then sent it to um, the WPS block. Yeah, thanks for that. It, you mentioned it's been 25 years. On, I mean, in November 2020, it was 25 years. And you um, argue, and I'm quoting here, that it's still, like the Dayton Accords 25 years later, still exerts costly and deeply gendered political and socioeconomic consequences, not just on Bosnia and Herzegovina, but on broader Southeast Europe as well. Um, can you just expand on this? I haven't really done much on Southeast Europe, so this will definitely be the first one here. So, of course. Probably the most obvious kind of invisible aspect of this gender inequality um, is the lack of women in political representation. Um, they're both kind of visually underrepresented. Uh, and, and if they are represented, the gender is usually put to service of ethnicity rather than the other way around. So, you know, so some of these women then end up being kind of greater popes than pope. They're more nationalist than the nationalists themselves. Um, and that their gender or their sexual orientation in some cases are basically just used as signaling devices for the West that look how kind of gender equal we actually are or look how tolerant towards LGBTQ people we really are. Um, so they don't act upon that gender um, and, um, and that, and you know, and it's really kind of gender even in terms of its understanding is then reduced to women only, uh, which no proper gender analysis should ever be. Um, so that's kind of, that's one layer. Um, the other one, something that I have been paying more attention ever since this blog came out, uh, was also the media coverage. And I've been looking at the front pages of newspapers in the region. And it's just absolutely fascinating how very few women you see. Or if you see a woman, it's, it's a model, it's a singer, it's an actress, uh, but there are absolutely no other uh, women in in kind of in the media coverage. So women have been rendered kind of visually uh, invisible, I mean, really properly in the, in the reach. But what I was more interested in and what I'm in principle always much more interested in is, is kind of the deeper structural economic and social aspects of these gendered inequalities. So the total lack of recognition for um, kind of incredible invisible labor in care and family care in particular that women are carrying throughout the region. Um, the continued absence of reparation for the victims of violence, uh, the incredible kind of bureaucratic difficulties and obstacles that women who are war widows have and heads of households have if they try to kind of access any help from the from the state, uh, which is which is incredibly meager in in, in any case. Um, the lack of appropriate um, ways to address questions and is issues of domestic violence. 
continued sexual abuse, um, sexual harassment. Um, and all of these are kind of combined, you know, working to basically, again, kind of prevent women from getting into politics um, and, uh, and or, you know, for participating meaningfully in the political life. Um, so I was just recently in one of the one of the webinars about kind of women in Bosnia and remembering Srebrenica genocide in Srebrenica. Um, you know what I was trying to say is, is women are invisible not because they're not doing enough. I mean, you know that kind of the lean-in aspect of Western feminism just doesn't work in this context. Women are not visible because they're doing way too much. Um, they have they are carrying such a burden. Um, you know that actually kind of the question of visibility and appearance is is not not on their on their radar, um, and that works nearly throughout. I mean, it really works throughout the region. Uh, whether it's Croatia, which has already accessed kind of um, the EU, or it's Serbia, Bosnia, Kosovo, Macedonia, you know, Albania. Um, I, I think this is this is fairly uniform. And again, it's not for the lack of trying. It's not for the lack of activism on women part, women's part, um, or you know, for the lack of their um, participation, but on their own terms, uh, which is actually taking place. I think listeners from Lebanon are probably already thinking of, of similarities there, and I'll definitely we'll, we'll get into the the some of the similarities are very interesting between uh, Lebanon and Bosnia. But the, sort of the broader context of what we're talking about is a framework or an agenda called the Women, Peace, and Security (WPS). Can you sort of uh, a explain like? What is WPS just a bit more broadly, and how does the Dayton, uh, sorry, Dayton Accords relate to WPS? And I'll briefly plug in some way a pretty useful toolkit by the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, just as a disclaimer, that's where my partner works. And it's entitled uh, Localize the Women, Peace and Security Agenda. So I'll just mention that uh, because it has useful info on that as well. So yeah, can you just explain a bit what WPS is and how it relates to, to Dayton? Sure. I mean, WLPF or, you know, is, is kind of instrumental to this entire women, peace and security agenda is one of the first women activist organizations that actually started working on questions of peace. So uh, women, peace and security agenda is, is kind of the result of, of, of a century, I think, if not more, depends on how we count, of women's activism, which is related to peace and to peace processes. Um, that lobbying, I think, intensified during the 1990s, um, in part because of the Bosnian and Rwandan genocides and because of the greater visibility of kind of women's suffering and violence against women in these two um, horrific, um, horrific wars. Um, and so by the end of the 1990s, there was Beijing, obviously also Beijing conference, which um, kind of became a big platform for global organizing of women. Um, the the women activists have managed to kind of push onto the United the United Nations Security Council um, this gendered uh, agenda, um, and it resulted in a UN Security Council resolution resolution 1325 in 2000, and that resolution basically urged all actors who were involved in peace and peacekeeping processes to increase participation of women and to incorporate gendered perspectives into United Nations peace and security efforts. That resolution then, because of the continued civil society pressure and pressure of women's organizations, led to a series of subsequent resolutions. Um, the creation of this kind of broader uh, women, peace, and security agenda, and then development of national action plans 
um, for individual countries on how to implement WPS agenda into their, into their work. The resolution had four main pillars, uh, participation, protection against sexual and gender-based violence, prevention of violence, and then kind of relief and recovery. Um, and so, you know, now, 20 years later, uh, where we are is that this women, peace and security agenda has definitely kind of brought focus onto women, on gender issues, uh, on sexual and gender-based violence in conflict. Um, but, you know, in its implementation, many activists would argue it actually has not gone that far. So we have women in peacekeeping forces, but has the peacekeeping as an institution changed? Not necessarily, you know. And, um, and so there's some wonderful research that has been done uh, by this Women, Peace and Security, particularly kind of the program at, at LSE, scholars who are affiliated with it on these individual national action plans. And one of the things that's obvious is that most of them focus on participation almost exclusively, in part because I think participation is easy to track. So you can see, oh, there we have two women here, you know, three women in police forces. Look, we have increased the number of women in the military. And, and that kind of becomes the showcase of um, advancement. Uh, but substantive issues are not tackled and touched. So the, so the promise of WPS, which was to really transform our thinking about both war and peace, um, is kind of hidden behind this um, performance of, of implementation. Um, and it's, that's particularly obvious, I think, in places like Bosnia or perhaps in Lebanon, um, because that focus on participation, even though it's meager in Bosnia, um, just basically takes away the focus from any of these deeper structural issues of neglect that I was mentioning uh, before and kind of profound gendered inequalities. Another thing is, in, in the piece, you make a very interesting comparisons between even Belgium and Bosnia and Herzegovina. Um, it, the argument that you're making, and I'll, I'll ask if that's okay to also expand on that, is that institutionalized ethno-religious divisions have a high human cost. So it's not just a bad idea, very you know broadly speaking. Mm -hmm. It actually has a high human cost. And you, you did cite the COVID-19 pandemic here. Can you, can you sort of explain that? So I, I turn to Belgium because in current conversations, but it, particularly I think within the EU, um, you know, not to mention that Brussels is the seat of it, um, Belgium is very often used as a kind of a positive example of consociational governments. Um, and um, and so you know there's there's a number of kind of policymakers and uh, think tankers. Um, in the EU who would very often drop kind of Belgium and say, well, there's nothing wrong with Bosnia. Just look at Belgium. Look how wonderful you can actually um, be. And so I, I, I did look a little bit more closely then into Belgium thinking, well, this is not necessarily, <laughs> this is not necessarily right. Even though Belgium, yes, has these very complex political institutions, which enable power sharing between the, 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 the Dutch speaking and the French speaking and, and also a small portion of the German speaking communities. Um, it's also, by many, it's characterized as a very deeply flawed democracy. It has also been kind of riveted by scandals over and over and over again. Um, and, um, and so I, I wanted to underscore that these power sharing agreements um, and consociational agreements can actually kind of create very similar pathologies, whether you're centered in the kind of European metropole or you're somewhere on the, on the periphery. 
Um, and so some of these issues, which you can find in Northern Ireland, in uh, Belgium, um, in Bosnia, is that they have these multiple and overlapping layers of government. Uh, they have bloated public sectors. Uh, they have rampant corruption and organized crime. Um, and then also they mar marginalize all of those communities which are not represented by these dominant ethnic groups. So, so in Belgium, in the case of Belgium, it's actually immigrants um, and particularly Muslim immigrants. So Brussels, you know, uh, the moment you go away from kind of the EU headquarters, um, Brussels itself becomes a place where um, tensions are almost palpable, I think, on the streets. I mean, it's it just kind of uh, the, the lack of assimilation or the absence of assimilation of pathways for us, even assimilation, which is not necessarily the best possible outcome um, for immigrants is is kind of, yes, it's it's you can feel it on the on the streets. And COVID has dramatized that. Um, and, and kind of made this even more obvious. So over the last six months, Bosnia and Brussels have been sharing this kind of totally unenviable statistics in which they have the highest percent of COVID cases per capita, and that they have the highest mortality rate also uh, per capita. And some, one of the reasons for this is that this kind of, that they have fragmented public health systems, which just proved to be not sufficiently responsive in times of crisis. Uh, they're underfunded and they're very often inaccessible to outsiders, uh, but then also sometimes even to the insiders. Um, and so the situation in Bosnia, Belgium has kind of improved a little bit, even though once again, it's paradoxical almost how high that percentage was, even vis-a-vis -vis Netherlands, which is just next door. Um, in Bosnia at the moment, the situation is catastrophic. It's just really kind of, um, it's, it's basically Bergamo and, and New York um, and combined, uh, you know, with with the number of deaths per day in Sarajevo, which was kind of occupied under the war during the wars in the 1990s, had the longest siege in modern history. Uh, more people are dying now per day than they did um, during the worst days of shelling, um, and the health system has completely and totally collapsed. And the vaccines have not yet arrived because these different kind of, you know, strands of government could just not even agree on how to order vaccines in the first place. Um, so this, so, so the COVID amplifies then this kind of, amplifies and exemplifies, I think, um, how, uh, yes, how costly uh, for ordinary citizens, um, these power sh sharing agreements um, can be. I mean, it, you know, talking about Lebanon, this is what Lale Khalili was making this kind of similar argument about the, the, sh the ship that exploded in Beirut, you know, where where danger hides in the plain sight um, and and leaves to the loss of human lives again because of the because of the the, the totally ineffective kind of uh, power structure. Yeah, indeed, and that's that's a good transition because I think a lot of people, if you know, those listening from Lebanon would see the similarities even in the COVID responses uh, in Lebanon. Uh, a few days ago, well, we're recording this on the twenty second of March. A few days ago, the the prime minister ordered um, uh, a, like a batch of vaccine doses to be sent to a specific region in northern Lebanon because that's why he thinks that people are going to vote for him. Uh, and so this is part, it's definitely a big, 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 big part of the problem, uh, even in, our, in the response against COVID. And I, I really think that I, I haven't seen that argument being made, although I'm sure someone has, of, of how the, the 
system in Lebanon itself, or what what people usually call sectarianism, um, how it has affected the, the 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 response against COVID. Because at the end of the day, you, you sort of need a, a a notion of a public or notion of a common good, if not a public, a common uh, to to do this. You did expand the comparisons in in the in the piece to Northern Ireland, to Cyprus, to North Macedonia, and and of course Lebanon as other examples of power sharing agreement. And he will sort of expand on this on why I think the Lebanon um, angle anyway is, is interesting. And of course I can speak to it more than I can speak to the others. Um, like rather symbolically, we commemorated the, the 30th anniversary of the signing of the Ta'if agreement during the October, 2019 uprising. Uh, that, agreement was, was, that agreement was signed on 22nd of October, 1989. Um, I've mentioned, and for those who know, Ta'if is the agreement that ended the, the Lebanese civil war officially anyway. I've mentioned Ta'if a number of times on this podcast and in other places and stuff. And I will try and also dedicate an entire episode just on it because it is, it's very interesting in how how messed up it was and how much it failed almost immediately after being signed. And yet this is still the framework 30 years on. Uh, but like suffice it to say, at least for now, that a fundamental flaw in the agreement was the complete lack of any kind of transitional justice. There, were, there was just not a mention of, of what to do with the actual crimes committed, with the actual people who lost their lives, or et cetera, et cetera. In fact, like the warlords that, that were offered a general amnesty, and the general amnesty came after the Taif Agreement, was one of the first laws, if not the first law, that the post, officially post-war parliament signed. Uh, into existence, like the, these warlords have benefited from this amnesty, and 30 years on, they are well still in power. A lot of them, anyway, are still in power. If not them, then it's their male relatives. So, two easy examples is the president; he's a former warlord, and the the speaker of parliament; he's also a former warlord. Uh, the president's son-in-law is the head of his party, and the um, previous. I don't know how he's technically no longer foreign minister, but it's a bit complicated. Um, and so anyway, so all of this, that these former warlords and the, the signing of the tariff agreement, even the way it was signed and in the context at which it was signed, I won't get into the geopolitics too much, but suffice it to say that in Lebanon itself, the country still had two different military occupations, the Syrian and the Israeli one, mm-hmm. um, the Syrian until 2005, the Israeli one until 2000. And this was obviously not mentioned in the Taif Agreement because, I mean, Syria uh, is the reason why the, the Taif Agreement was signed in the first place. So, like, again, to cut this sort of a long story short, the, the agreement failed to achieve some of its most basic goals. For example, there was no deadline as to when Syrian troops were supposed to leave, again, because they, they made the others sign it. So they stayed for 15 years um, after signing that agreement, after the agreement was signed, sorry. There was no plan as to how to deal, how to disarm militias. It was just assumed that uh, they will willingly do that because they will have incentives. And of course, we know Hezbollah 30 years on is the most powerful entity in the country. Due to this amnesty law, and this is where the the gendered aspect especially comes in, uh, the Lebanese and and the Palestinians who were forcibly disappeared during the, the civil war, I usually call it the Lebanese wars and plural, uh, they were never found. Uh, they were never looked for in the first place. And as most of them were men of quote unquote fighting age, which could really be as young as 14 or 15, it has meant that most of their loved ones, the people who turned into the activists quote unquote for the disappeared after the, the end of the war, uh, have been women. And this I know is a common story. I can easily think of Bosnia, I can easily think of Argentina, of course, is a famous case of, of that happening as well. 
Um, so this perhaps to me is, is where the, the gender component comes. I mean, militias in the first place and warlords in the first place, that's already very gendered. Um, but this is one way in which how like deeply entrenched this patriarchal approach is in the context of Lebanon, as indeed in context of Bosnia, as you, as you explained. And since the quote unquote end of the war, as during the, the wars, um, virtually every single position of power has been occupied by men. Uh, and that's not even counting the religious authorities that are of course exclusively men, um, including, and this is the semi joke, but like the first ever women's affairs minister in Lebanon was also a man. Um, and Lebanon's deep economic crisis that's ongoing right now and it's really getting worse as we're talking, um, cannot be separated from the fact that men have really called all of the shots. And yet this is still something that is not brought, I mean, it's definitely talked about more in, in recent years, even in the context of Lebanon, but it's still sort of taken for granted that the people in power are all men. And like 30 years on, as I said, like the same group of men, basically my entire life, I'm turning 30 soon. This is the entire, uh, my entire generation essentially has lived with these, uh, with these men and no one else. Uh, either them or their male relatives, they're still in power. And Lebanon is going through this severe economic crisis, as I mentioned. Women are at increased risk of uh, stuff like period poverty and, of course, increase of domestic uh, violence, as has been a trend across the world. And not to mention the specific violence inflicted on the, the racialized uh, workers, racialized women, especially under the, the country's kafala system. I would briefly say that I've, I had a number of kafala episodes and people listening can just type kafala in the search bar and they'll probably find it. So I like, I'm barely scratching the surface with all of this. And so sort of to start off this section of the conversation and so in, in, in some ways, what do you think of the Bosnian Lebanon comparisons? And separately, although it's interrelated, what are some examples of this gendered impacts uh, of the Dayton Accord specifically uh, 25 years on? So, you know, based on your kind of description, uh, these could be mirror images uh, Lebanon and Bosnia could be mirror images of each other. Um, and, uh, you know, on the issue of transitional justice, I was once again thinking just the other day when we were preparing for this webinar on women and, and, and Srebrenica on the International Women's Day, uh, how long uh, and how, how much time was actually kind of uh, used of women's activism and women's possibility to participate in the hunt for the war criminals, you know, uh, so that the, the kind of the chief perpetrators of violence um, were not really captured until the latter part of the 2010s. Um, in Bosnian case, and in the case of the former Yugoslavia, that transitional justice was farmed out to the International Criminal Tribunal in The Hague. Um, so it was not even kind of the justice was not done locally. But that then meant both waiting for the ICTY to capture these war criminals. And then the second aspect was that the Bosnian cases became really important for the building of the international law. Uh, so they became really important precedents that affect real people, real lives, people who are expecting some justice to come. You know, they were, they were kind of more important for legal scholars than for those who were victims of that of that violence or were expecting justice in any case uh, in any way or form. So that delay um, it has other effects and I uh, just want to mention briefly and add kind of another layer to what you were talking about in this power of the men. The other layer to this is that you then have 
entire sectors of the states, of these newly formed states that come out of conflict, devoted either to the hunt after the criminals or to hiding of these criminals. And they build institutions around them. I mean, you know, the, the police functions in, in order to hide a war criminal. Um, and, uh, and that allows for other forms of criminality to go unattended. Um, and so, you know, in the, in the kind of a Bosnian case, the post-war period became one of these, again, entrenched masculinities, but also different new forms of sexualized use and abuse of women, including women trafficking, which kind of totally exploded, for instance, in the latter part of the 1990s or early 2000s as a problem. And it was not a local problem. It was also a transnational problem because it was fed by the international peacekeepers, the demand for women. But, you know, uh, it, it, it reverberates then on, on how women in principle are treated in the, in the society. So I think, you know, kind of to, to draw these comparisons, some again, to st structural plane, I think that, the, that they are very similar and that they have produced nearly identical afterlives. Um, in international relations, we often speak of kind of the frozen conflicts. Uh, and so both Lebanon and Bosnia are examples of these frozen conflicts. And the way that these frozen conflicts are interpreted is there are conflicts where there are no clear victors and where this potential for eruption of violence is never too far beyond the surface. But I think that the freeze was intentional in these peace agreements. Um, they were, they were, first of all, they were based on a flawed interpretation of conflict in the first place. They were interpreted as sectarian, ethnic, you know, religious cases of religious violence. Um, so they were, they were viewed as idiosyncratic and as local, uh, and as a product of something that's actually the asset of these societies. They were, they were, the conflicts were seen as a product of their rich and cultural cultural and ethnic and religious diversity. Um, so the international dimension of these conflicts was kind of negated. Uh, you mentioned Syria and the Israeli occupation in Bosnia, it was kind of the Serbian Croatian meddling and aggression. Those aspects were neglected and then not to speak of the broader kind of geopolitical um, superpower jostling uh, that affected them as well. And so you end up with these power sharing agreements uh, with local actors are all men uh, and who have assumed the mantle of these various different aspects of ethno-religious nationalist politics uh, because they're really the perfect clients I think also for the for the great powers um, and they continue to operate thanks to this kind of bizarre stability pledge you know that they are on the one hand the international community claims that it can't cannot find any other credible alternatives to these thugs um, because no one else can deliver and on the other hand, there are these fears that the violence can break out again anytime. So they fetishize stability um, at the expense of any other uh, possible aspects of politics. And so that becomes a real kind of catch 22 um, over time. Um, it, it's kind of a traditional way of enforcing security, again, understood in this very manly way uh, through basically perpetual production of insecurity. Yeah, thanks for that. I, while you were talking, I really thought of two other um, comparisons or potential comparisons. One, the the um, it was a de facto policy in in Lebanon after Ta'if to adopt a in Arabic it's called Lara Lebula Marloub, so like no victors, no vanquished, mm -hmm. and that was the the underlying um, the underlying policy essentially. But of course, like that, even that. Um, 
sort of hides the fact that there were people who were technically vanquished, for example, in in post-war Lebanon, Mm -hmm. uh, Palestinian factions were all vanquished compared to uh, their positions in the early 70s. Regardless of what people might think of that, that's just a fact. And of course, I'm not even talking about the civilian victims that are, you know, obviously vanquished in that sense, and they were they weren't given any kind of recognition either. Uh, so it's a pretty self-serving uh, policy, obviously, is what I'm trying to say. The other thing is that many people outside of Lebanon are surprised to hear this, uh, although in Lebanon at this point, especially since October 2019, it's become as as um, as clear as it gets that the ruling elites are all in this together. And the best example that, uh, well, I can give two quick examples. One, the more recent one and the ongoing one is the fact that the party that wants Hariri most in as prime minister is actually Hezbollah. Hariri is the Saudi-backed prime minister, son of a billionaire, himself billionaire, kind of uh, completely entrenched in that uh, world of like Gulf capitalism. And the party that really wants him most in power is the quote-unquote anti-imperialist, pro-Iran, anti-West, etc., etc., militia slash party. And the reason for that is that, well, with him in power, well, the state or at least the status quo can continue in the same way as it has before, which has benefited that specific group, etc., etc. Another even more obvious example, like if people, you know, everyone knows that I'm anti-Hezbollah and I mean, I'm also anti-Hariri, but I, I focus on Hezbollah. And so they might think I'm biased on this. I can just link to the fact that during the municipal elections uh, in, in Beirut, the, the, the party, there was only one independent party called Beirut Medinity. There was another one, but that was the main one. Civil society leaders, I guess you might call them like engineers and teachers and whatever. The, the list that they were running on was opposed by essentially the entirety of the Lebanese establishment. You had Hariri and Amal and the Free Patriotic Movement and whatever, they were all together, even though they are technically part of opposing coalitions, because they, of course, understood that they need to control the the, 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 the seats, at least legally speaking, in Beirut. So that's just like two examples of how this works as well. Another in, very interesting example that you make, and this is something that I sort of knew about, but not in detail or not, not as much as I wanted to, is the impact of the Dayton Accords on the 2011 Arab Spring, at least in in, in as far as Western governments um, mm-hmm. were concerned. And here I'll read from your, from your write-up on this quote. Many US politicians, including President Joseph Biden, diplomats and academics have created effective links with Bosnia and the Balkans, which now serve, serve as formative experiences for their research slash, slash practice and the lens through which they observe other global conflicts. So it was Bosnia, which apparently loomed behind the US and the UK's decisions to intervene in Libya in 2011, but also behind Western indecision to decisively, indecision to decisively aid opposition forces in Syria. When President Obama famously said that, quote, former farmers or pharmacists or teachers, end quote, were not hardened enough as fighters to be credible and therefore worthy of US support, end quote. So, the Libya one, I think, uh, link is sort of more, um, not more well understood, but in the sense that people who opposed intervention in Kosovo, let's say, tend to oppose intervention in Libya. They're kind of the, the same chorus of opinions more or less fall in line on this. Whereas in Syria, whereas, which is problematic, don't get me wrong, but whereas in Syria, the link, I think, isn't really well understood, despite the fact that it's been 10 years now. And um, at least I haven't really come across that many nuanced takes when it comes to this. 
the, the attitude that Obama had, which is pretty well known in my, let's say my circles, but still surprises a lot of people who uh, probably still believe that America just intervened in Syria to, you know, kind of this anti-imperialist, um, well, mythology when it comes to Syria, that Obama's attitude towards Syrian rebels is often ignored, as I said, in these debates around anti-imperialism, et cetera, et cetera. It is basically assumed that they just intervened and it's basically that they did in Syria what they did in Libya. Um, again, regardless of what people think of what happened in Libya, I'm just trying to be nuanced here. Uh, what I'm trying to get at is that, like, we might argue, and I think accurately so, that there are multiple Syrias in the way Syria is thought about, uh, just as there are multiple Bosnias. You describe the Bosnia of many U.S. politicians. Uh, so that's the one I'm a bit more familiar with just by watching a bunch of movies on Sarajevo. Uh, and that's a very distinct idea, that, that Bosnia, let's say. There's also the Dayton of the Bosnian political elites, or we might say the Bosnia of Bosnian political elites. And here I can definitely compare it to the Taif of these Lebanese political elites compared to the Taif of ordinary civilians in Lebanon, Lebanese or non-Lebanese for that matter. There's of course also the Bosnia of ultranationalists, Serbian ultranationalists, for example, or the Bosnia of some segments of these authoritarians that I, I sometimes focus on, whether on the left or especially on the far right, who both erase any kind of native agency in favor of, you know, like ideological posturing. So I didn't even have much of a question here. I just wanted to see if you wanted to jump in on this and we're like, what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, I, let me let me first start by clarifying one aspect of the kind of Bosnia quote unquote intervention, though I will very quickly dismantle that idea that there was an intervention in Bosnia. But um, that, that Bosnia, when it's, used in these U.S. diplomatic circles as an example of something. It's used as an example of quote-unquote coercive diplomacy or muscular intervention. And what they really mean by that is that diplomacy cannot work unless and until it's backed by force. Okay, so that's why you need a couple of planes and a few bombs um, and, and the threat of possibly kind of bringing in American troops to persuade someone like Milosevic to sign a Dayton peace agreement. And uh, so it's that duality which played itself, I think, in the Libyan and the Syrian case. Um, in the Libyan case, um, even though that intervention took place mostly because of French insistence, so it was not necessarily led by Americans themselves, uh, but the, once again, the idea there was like, well, well, we will use the force to support the opposition before we have a massacre and the genocide in our hands, and there, then we can negotiate. It turned into something else. Uh, in Syria, that did not necessarily happen um, in this kind of a prescribed way, precisely because Obama never trusted, quote unquote, the rebels. Um, you know, they were either thugs that you can't figure out who they are, or they were these intellectuals who were not necessarily credible as someone that you can deliver the force with. Um, and so that that's where Bosnia kind of loomed in the background of these decisions. Like it was, it was we cannot really do that in Syria because we cannot have that credible force and because we don't have basically credible tugs on the ground to deal with. But to the other aspect of your of your question, and I may may ramble a little bit and may go on a little bit here um, because I find that question really 
kind of not, I find the non-question really interesting. Um, so I'll probably respond by saying that, yes, I think that there are multiple Bosnians, obviously, and that there are also multiple Syrias and that there are multiple Libyans. Uh, but that there are also multiple interventions and varieties of non-intervention that are being practiced. So Bosnia, as I already mentioned, is now used as an example of this kind of successful intervention. While we are forgetting that the world actually, both Europe and the US um, in particular, we're just watching Bosnia and watching carnage in Bosnia for four years without doing anything or while simulating intervention by basically sponsoring a number of diplomatic talks and chats and you know possible kind of peace agreements, uh, which led nowhere. Um, in the meantime, the digging of the of the mass graves in Srebrenica was watched by the satellites. We know that. We know that basically the world, once again, that the world leaders knew exactly what was going on and did not react. So that then poses the question of like, what, what do we really mean by intervention? Um, you know, we, we know very well that there was absolutely no intervention in Rwanda to stop the genocide. But Belgian troops in the UN, you know, under the, the flag of the UN were actually there. Um, there was also outside support for the Operation Turquoise, which preceded the genocide. Uh, there was diplomatic intervention by the outside powers in the negotiations of the Arusha peace agreement. So when did intervention happen or not happen in Rwanda, you know, or in Libya? Was, was the intervention just the NATO bombing? Uh, or was the intervention to chase after Gaddafi and his sons after the intervention? Um, do we think that intervention is happening only when the US or the EU or NATO are intervening? Or can we call the Russian and the Turkish, uh, you know, incursion into Syria um, also interventions, or should they be labeled in some in some other way? So I think there's a lot that's going on in the kind of a talk about intervention um, in multiple circles uh, and in many levels, uh, and particularly in kind of the Twitter chat world, uh, where we don't we don't clarify these these concepts. In my own view, what the US did, which is basically arm the Syrian rebels uh, in some Syrian rebels in Syria. It, so the US arming of the Syrian rebels was not an intervention um, or sending some of the US special forces into Syria was not an intervention. The US vacillated on Syria from the very beginning. Uh, there were voices in the United States that warned from the very moment the protest started in Tunisia that any kind of movement for democracy in the Arab world will die in Syria, that that was going to be the graveyard of protests. Um, Syria was simply kind of perceived as, as way too big, too complicated, too beholden to Russia for any troubles and credibility. Who could the power be turned to in Syria if not Assad? Um, and so quickly, I think Syria was turned at least kind of once again in the media chatter and in the diplomatic chatter into this another unreliable spot of tremendous cultural and religious diversity uh, where no one could be trusted um, and therefore it was not suitable for intervention or for any kind of transparent risk um, of American lives. So I think in the conversations about intervention again, I think the anti-imperialist non-interventionist left, the ones who would be against Kosovo and against Libya, um, and are against now kind of doing anything regarding Uyghurs in China, 
usually make a huge mistake by denying the reasons for any kind of intervention at all. You know, they always assume that calls for intervention are based somehow on false premises. Um, in my world, at least, I know very few people who would simulate genocide upon themselves just to grab attention of the kind of world media or of the of the world powers. Um, so that kind of the denial of, of actual violence that may be calling for intervention is something that, that unifies the anti-imperialist left. On the other hand, personally, I have no hopes in altruistic interventions either. <laughs> you know, these military machines and especially the, the, the military machines of the world's largest powers, they just don't move in order to protect innocent civilians anywhere. Um, the U.S. moved in Bosnia and Kosovo only once it became obvious um, that what was at stake was really the U.S.-European relations, the future of NATO, the credibility of the U.S. post-Cold War leadership. Um, otherwise, there would be no data. So I think it's very dangerous, in my view, for particularly for those actors who are structurally weak in global politics to build their hopes of kind of regime change on the sympathetic actions of of great powers. We've seen that with, with Syrian opposition. Um, and even if and when it happens, you know, um, that, that the great powers come to their aid, uh, they will usually kind of treat them only as a sideshow in some bigger political, global geopolitical spectacle um, over which these local actors will then have very little um, control. I love the work of Walid Rad, Lebanese artist who works here in the United States who has produced these kind of very eerie maps of Beirut where, where he colors the bullet holes and walls in Beirut, giving different color for different country of origin uh, of the manufacturers of these bullets. So the walls then become kind of dotted with Russian, American, German, Chinese, et cetera, et cetera, colors and bullets. And so when I think of intervention in contemporary wars now, I think of that of Walid's work. You know, instead of kind of seeing clean and surgical interventions, which is what people are usually hoping for or fearing um, for the sake of protection of human lives, I just see this kind of these bullet holes mapping the world's greatest powers. Um, and I view most of us as, as targets in that mapping rather than kind of objects of sympathy or compassionate intervention. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And a, a way of uh, you definitely. So I wanted to transition to the 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 multiplicities of something that is otherwise thought of as as singular. So like as we mentioned, like multiple Syrias, multiple Bosnians, multiple Libyas, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. To kind of go back to the specific in some ways, uh, if we can focus a bit more on the many datums, uh, kind of expanding that idea a bit more, just because this definitely falls into my own thinking as well as the, the many thoughts and that and I think I would be able to 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 engage on that so can you explain um a bit more I know you already did but it, like let's expand a bit more on what we mean when we talk about the many datums and what are these many datums so what I argued in that in that text was that there were at least three datums there are probably more but you know for the sake of an argument they were three so the first one was this datum of the U.S. diplomats who see it as a as an example of coercive diplomacy, muscular intervention, uh, and who also tend to view Dayton as one of the greatest diplomatic achievements of the U.S. post Cold War foreign policy. Um, that in itself is a really interesting statement because they're basically implicitly then saying that everything else was a failure. But be that as it as it be. Um, 
the second datum which I described was the datum of the Bosnian political elites who perpetuate fear and insecurity in order to keep themselves in power. And they need each other in that game, just like you were describing with Hezbollah and, and, and Hariri. And then the third datum is the one of kind of everyday life in Bosnia, which I think probably can be described as just muddling through, um, or as I suggested earlier in relation to COVID as an absolute tragedy. Uh, but what's pr probably most interesting and important here is the symbiotic relation between the first two datums, the kind of the world of US and EU diplomats, I think, um, and the local elites and the way in which they sustain each other um, in that game and in the power uh, while simultaneously kind of excluding everyone else. Yeah, and so what I kind of wanted to do before moving on to the next uh, question is just think out loud of how this can actually apply to the Lebanese uh, case, because I can easily argue that there is a tariff of the diplomats or the, the politicians. And pre-2005, uh, when the Syrian uh, army was forced out of Lebanon, the Syrian revolution after the assassination of Hariri uh, father, the father of the current Hariri. Um, pre-2005, this would have been the Ta'if of Syria and Europe, for example. Um, people tend to forget now that um, France, for example, was on pretty good terms with the Assad's. Just as uh, I should say, like Berlusconi and Gaddafi were very close, etc., etc. So that would be one tariff. But then there's also the tariff of that political elite that in Lebanon that benefited from this, what some people call Pax Syriana uh, after uh, in the 90s up until 2005. And this includes, as I said, Hariri, uh, who was actually close to the regime before uh, falling out with them, which, which ended up with the assassination in 2005. But then, and this is where I will transition to the next question, there is a tariff of just ordinary people in Lebanon. So they, the, some of the obvious examples I mentioned before is just the, the families and the activists who are in that, in that, who work with that cause of like, quote unquote, they disappeared. Hassan Halwani, who is a Lebanese uh, director, uh, himself, the son, like his father was one of those forcibly disappeared in Lebanon, one of the communists who forcibly disappeared. He described to me, um, and I might interview him as well on the podcast, the, how the cause of the disappeared has been sort of depoliticized on purpose to fit this post of mm -hmm. status quo. Just to use one example off the top of my head. But the way, so the way it affects uh, civilians is very different from the way it, the way it was perceived by uh, essentially those at the top, whether locally or regionally. And in the case of Lebanon as well, they, they are definitely much more similar, these two, than they are to the third one, the one how it affects most other people. So in the context of uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina, um, the Dayton Accord, Accord mentions the so-called uh, three constitutional peoples of uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina. So Bosniaks, Serbs, and Croats. But it may, and here, <laughs> here I'm quoting you, I should forgot to say, but it made no mention of issues that are, quote, traditionally viewed as feminine and are particularly acute in post conflict spaces education, healthcare, and again, all of this I can apply to Lebanon as well. Um, so sorry, education, healthcare, invisible and informal labor, family care work, reparations for wartime violence. These have never been seriously considered, especially in relation to justice and continue to be trumped by security and stability concerns, end quote. You then go on to describe uh, the country as, quote, a country where babies die because of ethnified bureaucracies, where train tracks exist, but trains no longer travel anywhere, 
but where building some 60 kilometers of highway has taken nearly 20 years, where the key cultural institutions, including the National Museum in Sarajevo, was shut down for years, end quote, adding a mention by, I probably butchered the name, sorry, Azra Hromadzic, is that correct? Yeah, that's good. Good enough. <laughs> that today restrooms that today restrooms are just about the only public space where the youth from different ethnic backgrounds, for example, can meet and date. I will note also before kind of asking to expand on on this, the, the, just the similarities of like mind-boggling to me. Just even the train as that symbolism in Lebanon is very has a very, very big symbolic weight because that's what like our grandparents used to travel throughout the country with. And that that's the thing that was destroyed during the war and never really rebuilt after. And there are some train tracks and you have some of those abandoned train stations that are sort of this, in some ways, a cultural spot as well at this point, especially among activists. I would also like, you know, the, the example of the restrooms, it's pretty much this, in, in Lebanon, you don't have benches, you don't have public uh, parks, spaces in general. So the, the place where you, if you are from a very homogeneous community, would go to meet other people would be like the mall or restaurants, cinemas, cafes, you know which aren't obviously public spaces, but they can operate in that, uh, as that in those, in those contexts. So can we expand just a bit, um, I guess, more broadly on how this um, gendered patriarchal approach has impacted ordinary civilians in, in Bosnia and Herzegovina? So, so let me try just by, by kind of the illustrating a little further the, the trains and the restrooms uh, building upon just upon what you just said. In, in Bosnia, one of the key um, you know, reasons why people would travel by train before was would be to take the train and go down to the coast, to go to the beach, um, go to the Adriatic Sea. Uh, and now, you know, it's, it's really kind of, it's, it's tragic to me to know that children are growing up who have never seen a train. I mean, they just don't even know what the train, what the train looks like. Same for Lebanon, and, yeah. And Azra's, Azra's story about these restrooms is 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 in her book um, about which basically focuses its ethnographic work on a high school in Mostar, which is in southern Bosnia and Herzegovina. Um, and the high school itself is divided between the kind of a crowd and the Bosnian Muslim um, kids population. And uh, and apparently it was, you know, the, 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 the schoolmasters have done such a fabulous job that children would go to classes and attend school in such a way that they don't even encounter each other in the corridors. And, uh, but the restrooms are still common and they have breaks at the same time. And so what happens is that during the breaks, um, teenagers go to these restrooms to meet and to date and to flirt and to smoke and, you know, kind of, um, exchange exchange life stories, um, but they don't really use restrooms. I mean, they have they have gotten this to the point of science where they would actually ask to go out to use the restroom during the class because then there's no one there. But they would not break that pressure moment of interaction that they that they have. Um, and she's done a she's done a fabulous work in terms of kind of. Um, you know, asking and getting the information from the kids of how far they would go in that flirting. Would they, they sometimes date, but many of them are now afraid of, of getting married because they don't want to complicate lives for their children. Uh, you know, and so something that that was 20 years ago, a completely normal thing um, of, of kind of ethnic uh, mixed marriages, they were over 35% of them in Bosnia uh, before the war. Um, there are basically none, none now. Um, and so that kind of the 
So the restrooms are both symbolic and at actual places of, 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 of multi-ethnic um, encounter. But I think on a, on a different level now, I mean, I think probably since um, I, one of the kind of the thing which looms here in the background, since Dayton was very much like the Taif Agreement about securing a military stalemate. I mean, this is really what these agreements were all about. The emphasis was both in negotiations and then in the aftermath on appeasing men who held guns. Um, so, so anyway, so so let me look at the kind of at the at the bigger picture here beyond beyond restrooms. Uh, you know, since I think Dayton was very much like as you describe also the Taif Agreement about securing a military stalemate. Um, the emphasis was both the negotiations and then in the aftermath on appeasing men who held guns, men, men who could control guns. Um, in Lebanon, you know, the neighborhood made things more complicated. Um, in Bosnia, I think the situation was further complicated by the kind of in, the exigencies of NATO enlargement, securing of the role for NATO in the Balkans. Um, some of it is becoming even more obvious now because Russia has actually kind of reared its ugly head and, and so the geopolitical competition um, is becoming more obvious. So these mundane, or as, as we would now call them, human security issues, which are actually the ones which are most important for ordinary citizens, such as education, healthcare, justice even, all of that was pushed aside. Um, even economic recovery in Bosnia was engineered in such a way that it emphasized infrastructure and shady privatization, uh, which then privileged these manly elites who controlled guns um, and who could guarantee the peace agreement. Uh, informal economy, which ranged from completely illegal stuff like that organized trafficking of women that I mentioned in the beginning or, or other forms of organized crime, to on the other extreme, I think something like undeclared employment, working you know, on the black market. Uh, they were, that, that entire kind of informal sector was criminalized without any such differentiation. Um, so that basically it hurt very often women who were working in these informal um, sectors. Um, how people adapt. They adapt by, as I mentioned before, by muddling through or by leaving. Um, those who are muddling through are very often dependent on these ethnified political parties, on clientelism, on patronage, uh, because they, they dole out these public sector jobs as a prize for loyalty, for political loyalty. Uh, those who are leaving, on the other hand, um, leave and then send money back home. Um, in Bosnia, the war has produced, I don't know how big is Lebanese diaspora, but I know it's huge. Uh, Bosnia diaspora produced nearly 2 million refugees um, who are now kind of sending remittances back to Bosnia. So statistically, like 56% of Bosnians now live abroad. And then more recently, since 2015 in particular, um, additional tens of thousands of people have left. Um, and interestingly enough, it's many of them are medical workers uh, because that's what the EU kind of has a demand for. Uh, so they're leaving Bosnia to find employment in Germany and Sweden uh, and leaving that, leaving that impoverished healthcare system even more impoverished of that human capital. And then remittances when they come back, they usually employ basically women in care work for the elderly who were left behind, um, or they sustain households which were struck by unemployment. So even this kind of a shadowy economy, which really is the only alternative I think to this public sector, uh, and which is produced and kind of reproduced through various forms of migration, uh, becomes then highly gendered. 
you know, so you have this dualism, um, which, which in Bosnia itself really does not, it, it, it allows for the enrichment of a very few and this kind of literal muddling through for most of the rest of the, of the, the citizens. So along similar lines, I'll sort of just make a note of something that you also wrote, uh, because the parallel to Lebanon for me was quite something. Um, so, okay, we mentioned the two Daytons, we spoke about those. Their here I'm quoting, their common interest is in maintaining the political status quo and exclusion of all other actors who could threaten their positions in power. Their achievement, again, so that of the, the diplomats and the Bosnian political elites, uh, their achievement and the standard of political slash democratic practice is that, quote, people are no longer killing each other, end quote. Hence, when people, those others unrecognized by the Dayton Peace Agreement, happen to rise and demand more than, quote, not killing, end quote, from their political representatives, as was the case during the Bosnian Spring of protests in 2014, the EU and the US response is to increase funding and training for Bosnia surveillance programs and anti-riot police, end quote. So as with before, I can almost copy paste this paragraph and, and just replace it with Lebanon specific terms. I can mention that in 2014, when we were being tear gas, that was French tear gas. Uh, a month later, when Trump un unlocked $100 million of, Trump, of, uh, sorry, of military assistance to the Lebanese state and to the Lebanese army, that was just a month after the crackdowns against those very protesters uh, happened. And this, you know, for people who have this very simplistic geopolitical understanding of Lebanon, for example, they might be surprised that this is happening, that $100 million are going to a state that includes Hezbollah from the Americans, for example. But that's just how the nature of these entrenched political uh, dynamics are. The others, if we speak about others in the Lebanese context, wouldn't just be uh, you know, working class Lebanese or uh, Lebanese of, of certain minorities that aren't represented politically, like Kurds, for example, to just use one, one example. But those would also be Syrians and Palestinians who in, in the xenophobic sort of imagining of Lebaneseness or Lebanese identity, they tend to be perceived as exclusively male. And, you know, in addition to migrant domestic workers that are almost exclusively women, not just imagine, but like actually uh, exclusively women or almost exclusively women. These groups have been even today worst hit by the ongoing crises. And, but like at best they remain an afterthought, like even in these international discussions about how to save Lebanon or whatever, uh, which I have a lot of issues with uh, already, but even in those discussions, there's almost n never any mention of what to do with uh, 300 to 400,000 migrant domestic workers that are basically stuck in the country and their salaries are utterly useless at this point, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and yet after all, when, when our sort of spring to use that metaphor happened, it was in October, uh, that was also used as an excuse to just ramp up, palace, uh, sorry, uh, ramp up militarism uh, with Western backing. And whenever the, the the Lebanese government and like our former uh, foreign so our former foreign minister uh, would do this a lot, and that's why I actually would say, that's why I would actually say that if you really want to understand how the Lebanese government works, just listen to what Gibran Basile, the foreign minister, had to say, and that's because he would literally go to Europe and tell the Europeans, if you don't save Lebanon, you will have a refugee crisis on your hands. Mm -hmm. He would literally tell them that. And so they knew very well what the game was because they understood what the EU's priorities were in the first place. It's not that difficult to figure out. So now, today in Lebanon, ironically, given the geopolitical tensions here that exist in the country, 
the West, uh, the Gulf states and Iran pretty much agree on the basics of how to quote unquote stabilize the country. Of course, they would have their own preferred actors on how to do that, but the, the vision is more or less the same. So I just wanted to make a note of that. And I will ask you uh, how a situation such as ours, Lebanon, Bosnia, etc., tends to be considered successful, quote unquote, simply because people are no longer killing each other. Can you sort of expand on that? Let me respond in two ways. Once again, let me kind of respond by, by directly responding to this very similar kind of situation, which is now developing in Bosnia with, with migrants and refugees who are traveling through Bosnia on a quote unquote, the Balkan route to the EU. Um, and uh, where Bosnia, you know, it's kind of a, Bosnia is kind of a mini Turkey now, because uh, it's the last buffer before the entrance into the EU, before kind of reaching Croatia and then entering um, into European Union, um, where thousands and thousands of migrants get stuck. And so European Union is sending money to Bosnia to kind of keep these migrants um, within its own borders. Um, and one of our really incredibly brave colleagues, journalist Nijad Ahmetashevich has been doing, has been working as an activist with refugees, but also kind of writing about them a lot. There was just a presentation the other day at Columbia University where she showed these photographs of what the camps, you know, look like for refugees and migrants that are paid for by European Union. And as a survivor of the Bosnian war, she's basically saying this is this is the equivalent of concentration camps that we had in Bosnia during the during the war. And I'm not using that word lightly. And and you know the the migrants and the refugees in the current constellation of power, where you only have Serbs and Muslims in the Croats who are negotiating over over power, uh, much like the Romas were kind of local population, much like the Jews who are, you know, one of the constitutive peoples of Bosnia, not by constitution, but in terms of legacies and historical contribution to Bosnia. Uh, and then, you know, still thousands of others who don't belong to any of the of these ethnic of these ethnic groups. But in terms of these kind of negotiations and the wrangling of the world and the and the co cohabitation and 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 symbiotics between the international and, and domestic, um, you know, I, many years ago I was actually planning to write on how conflict and post-conflict spaces are now being transformed into unwanted colonies um, they, in, the, in the contemporary international system. They're, they're really not perceived as, as worthy of a full-fledged um, colonial effort, uh, not even of the violence, you know, colonial violence. Um, in, instead, they, they kind of linger in this legal Netherlands uh, with, with semi-sovereign governments or, or as protectorates um, like Bosnia and Kosovo until recently. And they're guarded only insofar and only as much so that they don't start new war wars because that's kind of the only reason why they, they exist. Um, and in turn, they're worthy of attention only because they can start new wars. So, so that kind of relation to violence is their only raison d'etre. Um, and elites in those play places have now learned very well how to extract favors from these outside sponsors that they have uh, by keeping that possibility of violence alive at all times. They basically have very little else that they can offer or trade um, except for the threat of new war. Um, and then on the other hand, for their part, these outside sponsors use these areas now as kind of bargaining chips on the shifting geopolitical maps. Uh, you know, I'm my eyes are on Bosnia, obviously, because of my kind of um, 
because of my background, because of my 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 affections. Uh, but I, you know, I've been I've been looking at Cyprus um, for several years now, and just waiting for it to explode or to be traded in some way in these kind of imaginary bargains that that Russia, Turkey, and 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 the U.S. and the EU are doing in the in the in the kind of Mediterranean neighborhood. Um, and so these places have really there's no other value to them except for the fact that they can be that they can be traded and ex and exchanged. Yeah. So a few things before I move on to the next question. In terms of the the example of how these places can be traded, one element that I didn't mention about the TARIF agreement, uh, I think I've mentioned this in in some episodes in the past. But the reason why it happened is that the Syrian government just made it happen. They just imposed it on, on these other militias and they just had the overwhelming power, but also because they got the green light to, to do so by, at the time, the Israelis and especially the Americans, because the, it was the context of the first Gulf War, of course, and the Americans wanted the Syrians on their side against the, against Saddam Hussein, uh, which is, you know, which, which is what happened. And in return, essentially, among other things, it wasn't just that, but in return, they basically got Lebanon. So this happened, uh, and this is one of those details that ended up being uh, forgotten uh, in 2005, for example, when the Americans were calling for the Assad regime to leave Lebanon. Uh, you know, they they were part and parcel, uh, or they were part of the reason why he was, or he, his father and then himself was there, were there for that long. So that's one thing. Another thing, just because you mentioned the example of the of the Balkan rat, I'll just uh, take advantage to mention two episodes, uh, 35 and 49. The episode 35 is the one uh, on the European Union's violence against asylum seekers. And that's the one in which I interviewed uh, Jack Sapo of the Border Violence Mon Monitoring Network, which focuses a lot on that so-called Balkan route. Uh, the second one is on the Moria camp, the one that, uh, of mm -hmm. course, burned down uh, a, few, some, a few months ago. I interviewed Riaz Jundi, who's the Syrian British activist who would go to Moria a lot to help out, well, to help us activists there. And I had interviewed him uh, soon after the he had come back after the fire. So that that's one context. And I will also interview the the, the border violence monitoring network, those same people, uh, because recently they they published a pretty massive volume called the Black Book of Pushbacks which they actually even presented to the EU, or at least I think it was sponsored by a, a couple of EU, I think the Greens or something, parties. Uh, people can look that up. I'm not entirely sure. Uh, but it's a massive, massive book. It's it's on my way. I, have, I don't have it yet, but it's like 1,500 pages long. It's it's in, it's two parts. There's two uh, sections of it. Uh, and it documents the horrific, and here I'm quoting, the violence suffered by over 12,000 people at the hands of authorities on the EU's external borders. Um, so in that so-called Balkan route. So this is a pretty, pretty massive problem. Of course, Cyprus, oh, sorry, of course, Turkey, uh, as you mentioned, like Bosnia being mini Turkey, uh, Turkey has uh, notoriously had that deal with the EU to essentially, mm -hmm. essentially trade, um, I don't know how you might call it, but essentially trade the lives of refugees for for cooperation or for, we'll, we'll just keep them here if you shut up about other stuff, essentially. Exactly. So, I will, um, before entering the kind of the book section, um, in the comments to the, my, so my, my last question, in the comments to your piece uh, on, on LSE's uh, website, uh, and of course, all of this, I will link it in the description. You replied to a question by a person named Rachel. And if that's okay, I'll just re-ask it here because I found it very interesting, both the question and the answer. So she asked, is it correct to say that the quote unquote manly approach, both in terms of women underrepresentation and lack of gender clauses, of the Dayton Peace Agreement 
has been deemed one of the main causes of the failure of the National Action Plans, NAPs, for the implementation of the WPS, Women, Peace and Security Agenda, in Bosnia and Herzegovina's transition. And so that was the question. And would you mind just repeating sort of your response and expanding a bit on it? Sure. So what I told Rachel in response was that Dayton peace agreement might not be the, the, only, the only factor, I think, that had pushed women's rights and gender issues backwards in Bosnia, or for that matter, in Northern Ireland or, or Lebanon. Uh, but it, it probably is and was and is the most important institutional barrier for any other kind of politics except for ethnic politics. Okay, um, So it basically precludes any other kinds of political identities uh, that can come to the fore. Uh, and that then includes any kind of politics that's attentive to gender equality. And then vice versa, um, and, and then this is probably the most important aspect of what I wrote, which I would like to underline here at the end. It is really by using this kind of gendered lens in the analysis that we can more easily see all other limitations that these power sharing agreements pose uh, to political life. I mean, if we do that traditional kind of where are the women and we realize how absent women are from this kind of public life and political life in these power sharing societies, that then enables us to see who else is missing and how many others are missing. So I don't necessarily use gender analysis only to focus on, on women, but really as a, as a kind of a you know, way of, of highlighting uh, these huge gaps and tremendous inequalities in both in political participation, but also in economic, in terms of economic and social justice uh, that are inflicted upon the population kind of as a whole. Um, so I think once we recognize then how unrepresented women are, uh, we can see how exclusionary by their very nature, these power sharing agreements are in consociational politics. Uh, while at the same time, they do their best to kind of simulate inclusion and equitable division of power. So we might say that adopting a gender analysis would allow us to make those forcibly invisibilized uh, components of these societies more visible. Exactly, exactly. I mean, it, it's in some of the responses that I received from friends to, you know, who read this long post, their first and immediate reaction was like, wow, now I can see the refugees and now I can see the immigrants, you know, and, and how, how there's literally no space for them in this, in this kind of a political world. All right, well, on that note, uh, let's sort of enter the book section, if that's okay. What are, what are three books that you would recommend and, and why? So one of the key things that I think, as I was preparing for the podcast, I was thinking like, well, what motivates me? What, do I, what kind of books do I like and why? And I think the key issue that I'm fascinated by in, in all of my work is kind of the ways in which power hides and obscures its workings. Like, how does the power actually make itself also, uh, you know, less visible? And so the three books that I would recommend, um, they're very different, but, but all, I think, speak to that issue. Uh, the first one, which I just recently um, kind of taught in my graduate seminar, is a book by Margaret Faitlovitz, which is called The Lexicon of Terror. And it's about Argentina. Uh, and it's about language and discourse. Um, it's also a harrowing book. It's very difficult to read it, but you can't stop reading it. 
Um, and again, I think since I could recognize Serbia in it and, and Croatia and Bosnia, I'm absolutely sure that you would recognize Lebanon in it. Um, so some of the most, you know, kind of uh, memorable parts of the book are, for instance, about the use of women's magazines during the Dirty War uh, to, um, again, obscure the disappearances of children, um, you know, and the way in which the, the regime kind of needled mothers and, and spoke to mothers in such a way that they would feel responsible for raising these subversive children so that, you know, so that basically the, it's, it's not the violence of the state in killing the young people who are for no reason deemed the subversive, but the mothers would then kind of assume that responsibility upon themselves or be, be pinpointed by the regime as being responsible for, because they brought up children who were, who were traitors. Um, so she does a wonderful job of kind of, um, um, you know, kind of uh, creating the texture of, 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 of discourse and, and violence um, and, uh, and, and the way in which the regime hid its worst kind of um, atrocities um, from, from the people. Um, the second book, which I love, and I was reading it a lot and rereading it and hoped that I would be writing about it during the Trump years in the United States is, is Mikhail Bulgakov's novel called Master and Margarita, uh, which um, describes the early years of the Stalin uh, rule in, in, in uh, the post kind of Soviet, uh, post-revolutionary Russia. Uh, and the reason why I love that book is because it does something that's I think it particularly works for kind of the American context where, where the tendency is to think about authoritarianism in black and white terms, you know, to think that um, somehow authoritarianism has to be bleak. Uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a world which is where everything is gray, where nobody's happy, nobody's laughing, you know. Uh, and what Bulgakov does in describing that Stalin's world, it's, it's a constant circus. It's actually kind of perpetual entertainment. Um, and, uh, and, you know, and that's where it's, it's the arbitrariness of power, um, it's the unpredictability, um, it's the joyous exuberance of authoritarianism, uh, which I thought was um, so apt as a description of what was going on in the United States over the last couple of years, but some would argue probably even longer and before Trump. And then the final book that I would recommend is one by my co-author, Jackie True, on the political economy of violence. Um, and uh, mostly because I think that Jackie does a fantastic job in kind of explaining the links uh, between both wartime violence, domestic violence, sexual violence, and the structural inequalities in which women find themselves. Um, so, you know, it's kind of, it's a great, great book. Um, for almost as a kind of, it offers a method on how to think um, about the relationship and particularly distorted relationship between kind of economy and violence in, again, in conflict and post-conflict spaces. All right, well, amazing. Thanks a lot for those recommendations. And Aida, thanks a lot for your time. This has really been amazing. You are most welcome. This was, this was tremendous pleasure. Thank you.
The Fire These Times is made possible by supporters on Patreon. If you'd like to support through a monthly donation, you can head out to patreon.com slash fire these times. If you want to explore other options, you can do so by checking out the website.